The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hi, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. This is Joey Bushnell. Today's special guest is a fantastic copywriter. Her name is Joanna Wiebe. Go to copyhackers.com to find out more. Joanna, thank you for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Joe. Good to, good to chat, yeah. Joanna, how did you become a copywriter? I became a copywriter kind of by accident. I think a lot of people probably do that if they have a writing background. Um, I started working at an agency. I, I dropped out of law school. I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> My friend worked at an agency and she said they were looking for a quote unquote creative writer. And I was like, okay, sounds cool. Um, so I went there, got the job, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I was my, my boss on the first day when he's like, well, what do you want to put on your business card? Do you want to say creative writer or copywriter? And I was like, ooh, gross, not copywriter. That sounds so boring. So we went with a creative writer and it wasn't until a few years later after I kind of left that agency environment that I really realized um, that I always had been a copywriter and that I was at my best for my clients when I was acting as a copywriter rather than a creative writer. So that's, that's kind of how I fell into it. I didn't even know what copywriting really was when I started, um, but I think that's probably the case for quite a few of us stumbling into it, you know? And these days, you're famous for a website that you run called copyhackers.com, uh, which is a great website. I read it all the time. Lots of amazing content and free stuff that you give away over there, Joanna. So is that your main focus at the moment, copyhackers? Is that your main website if people want to go and check you out? Yeah, exactly. Copyhackers is my baby. We're just over two years old now, and it's a, it's a really fun um I won't call it a job. It's a really fun project to have. It's, yeah, that's where I'm at, though, copyhackers.com. Awesome. Yep. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about today is all about copy and conversion rate optimization, as uh, everyone may have guessed already. And we're going to be talking about topics that I've seen that you've discussed over at Copyhackers in one form or another, perhaps on a blog post, perhaps uh, in one of your ebooks that you've written. Um, so I took some inspiration from there. Is that okay if we can talk about some of those things today? Yeah, I love it. So my first question is about the length of copy. You say that it's sometimes appropriate to use short copy and other times it's more appropriate to use long copy. So in what situations is each appropriate? Ah, that's really tough to say. I mean, most copywriters would give <laughs> the same answer. It depends. Mm -hmm. But um but there is sort of a sort of a line, right? You can kind of tell more what belongs as long copy than maybe what belongs as short copy, but it's like if it doesn't, it shouldn't use long copy, then obviously we'll use short copy. Mm -hmm. But things that require long copy or not maybe even not always require but really benefit from long copy um, are, of course, those products that, you know, there's one group of products that is like the miracle cure space. Obviously, I think we're all aware of that. Um, but I work with startups, tech startups in particular, right? So I don't actually work with anybody in a miracle cure space. Mm -hmm. um, my partner at Copy Hackers does, but I don't. Yep. Um, and I still recommend long copy for a lot of people. Um, a lot of my clients, again, tech startups, just really when 
when you have a lot of objections to overcome, a lot of anxieties to address, um, or if your product is really easily demonstrated or does well under demonstration, then long copy or even a hybrid of short and long copy can can do really really amazing things for you. So back to like the objections and anxieties. Um, normally, the higher your price, the number, the more the objections, you know, spring up. Yeah. Um, so if you have a high price product, it can also be a good thing for you to use. Um, to use longer copy to help people really work through not only what your product is, but how it fits into their lives and how it's not just like this side thing that they, you know, can treat as a commodity, but rather that it's um, something that where a narrative where your story um, can really help them kind of be pulled in to the offering that you're providing to them rather than like short copy where, you know, Readers are allowed to skip all over the page, look at whatever they feel like looking at, decide if they want to focus on the message that you have, um, and kind of pull pieces together all on their own and make their own decisions versus long copy, right, where you can at least shape a narrative that, of course, when we're telling stories, we're usually doing a very good job of selling versus not telling a story. So that's my very long and convoluted answer to uh, to a question that every copywriter has to answer, yeah. uh, but really answer specifically in most cases for their client, their client's audience, and and the product that they're actually selling. Does that is that too convoluted? No, not at all. I think um, some key points there were uh, price that may be a factor, the complexity of a product may be a factor, and a couple of other things as well. So thank you very much. That's a great answer. My next question is, should we be aiming our message to a small group of people or a large group of people? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good question and every copywriter has to face this. Every marketer has to, right? It goes well beyond your copy to when you're stepping back further and saying, who's our audience and who with each page should we be trying to address? So I actually <laughs> had this, um, um, I wrote a blog post recently on Copy Blogger um, about buttons, calls to action. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, we had a bit of a discussion, and it wasn't about the buttons at all, but rather a word that I used in my in my bio or my little like byline at the bottom of the post, and I used the word mofo <laughs> in it. And mofo, of course, it's it's kind of it's just it's a euphemism, right? It, it's it, but it used to have bad meanings, right? Like yeah. the actual, right? We all know where it comes from. Most of us do at least. And if you yeah. don't, then that's cool too. Um, but anyway, I use this because my tagline at Copy Hackers is where startups and marketers learn to convert like mofos. Um, and so I put this in my byline. This is the way I talk. This is the way I write. This is how my audience, uh, they're cool with it. They respond well to the way I talk and write. Anyway, so I put it in my byline. I didn't say anything else throughout the rest of the post that was remotely offensive, like using words that people that like the general audience wouldn't like to hear. But when it came time to my brand part, um, that's when I got into language that was right for a specific group of people. The first comment on this copy blogger post was from Bob Bly, the copywriter, who I totally respect. Um, read tons of stuff throughout time. Um, and he was, he was really offended by my use of the word mofo. And he, then he got into it. So I, you know, apologize. I hope you like the rest of the post. But the comments that happened outside of my exchange with him, where he was going back and forth with other people who had read the post, they were all really around, do you target 
a small group of people that might respond well to, say, a phrase like mofo, or do you try to please the larger group? And Bob, in this case, his comment was, or his position was, that why would you risk offending one in 100 people, whereas the other people are saying, well, why would you risk not turning five in 100 people into your fans, right? So um, do you pander to a large group or to the group that's most likely to respond well to you? So... I happen to agree with the other commenters, not the Bob Lies. I agree with him on a lot of things, but this was one where I think, and I've, I say this in my books too, it's one of the key messages of, in my, my first book, which people tend to respond really well to, um, and that is that you should focus your message on 20 to 35% of the visitors coming to your site. Now, that's kind of a broad, random number, but the point is that you shouldn't focus on 100% of people because, frankly, nobody ever convinced everybody. But you can convince a small group of people and get them interested in you versus versus trying to go for the whole pie, cut out a nice piece of the pie. And I think a lot of us as marketers, as more and more of us are, there are more, you know, startups being created, more people who are um, entrepreneurs on the side and things like that. There's so many more businesses. Um, I don't know if that's a true stat, but that's like that's like the reality of the world that we seem to be living in is that everybody's trying to create something. You know, we see Shark Tank and Dragon's Den. Everybody's trying to um, make that life for themselves, probably in response to the economy, but whatever. Um, but there's so many businesses out there. So many people are trying to get a piece of the pie that if you go for the whole thing, you probably won't get noticed. You'll get lost because you're competing against everybody else. If you niche out or niche, I think as Americans say it, if you go for a smaller group and target those people and speak to only those people who are really going to respond well to you, I've seen that work well for myself and for my clients. So I would say you should aim your message at a small group of people. Okay. And we should just be okay with that. We shouldn't be mourning the loss of the large group. We should be absolutely happy and fine to be targeting that small group. I think, I mean, yes, absolutely. Because what did you actually lose? You could have lost more of that small group. I mean, I've seen this. So this is just, it sounds theoretical, but in fact, this is what we test at Coffee Hackers, right? For our clients Mm -hmm. um, is learning what group is most likely to buy your product, be happy with it and talk about it and messaging to those people. If only 20% of your visitors to your site fit into that group, if you can talk directly to that 20% of people and really get them on board to sign up with you because you're speaking their language, you're speaking specifically to their pain points, hell, you can even buy better PPC ads because you know exactly who you're targeting and it's smaller than that large group. Let the other 80% go. They weren't going to buy from you anyway. Let them go and focus on that 20%. I mean, most sites are converting at 1% to 2%, and I think that's largely because they're trying to please everybody. Mm -hmm. But if you could focus on 20% of your visitors and convince even half of them to join your side because you're speaking their language, you're speaking to their pains, etc., that's a 10% conversion rate. And I'm not saying that that's what you absolutely can expect to happen. But really, when you're trying to speak to everybody, we all know when you try to speak to everybody, you speak to nobody. Mm -hmm. When you speak to a specific group, you're more likely to convert that group. And that's why I think you should not mourn the loss of people who are never going to be right for your business anyway. My next question is, why is the reader's state of awareness and sophistication level important in copywriting? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the old school copywriters, right? And I, I, I always say that this is 
I learned this from reading Gene Schwartz or listening to his interviews or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I can't actually remember if it was Gene Schwartz, if it was Schwartz or Cables or who it was or whatever. Um, but this definitely comes from some old school, quote unquote, old school copywriters where you should be thinking about um, the state or stage of awareness. And those are really five stages in there that I'd encourage people to read about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the reason that they're important you know, is that we can learn through each stage, which, you know, really does move from awareness, like low awareness of the existence of a solution to their pain to existence of a solution to their pain to existence of your brand or of you possibly being the right person to solve that pain to believing that you're absolutely the right person to solve that pain, right? So you're moving through these stages. Now, each stage in there, if you know where your audience is, especially for landing pages, if you know where your audience is or where the visitors to that 20 to 35 percent of your visitors who are coming to let's say your ppc landing page on uh, widgets on widgets for buses so you have this page if you know that they've only just learned in large part say they it's a ppc ad that's about widgets for buses that's what they searched they didn't search your brand they didn't search anything that was closer like a more specific type of widget for buses or widget for buses 2014 because they're looking for the most recent one or whatever it might be When you know what they're coming there for and how aware they are, you can actually target your message to them. And again, this is kind of focusing on smaller groups rather than larger groups. Mm -hmm. Apple doesn't have to worry about educating people on what an iPad is, right? Their awareness is so high that they can really just dive right into saying, here's our iPad, look at this. And if they really want to move people, all they have to do is put an extremely small incentive on the page or a little bit of urgency or scarcity. And, you know, Bob's your uncle. They're selling like crazy. We can't copy what Apple can do, right? We can't do that for our own businesses in most cases because our audience does not have the same level of awareness. And so when people are saying, well, I'm going to write copy like Apple does, or why doesn't, why doesn't Dropbox have to put more on their homepage than I do? Like, why are they putting just Dropbox on their page? Or why does Google just have the logo in a search box? Well, that's because their state of awareness is exceptionally high for visitors. If you try to do just your logo and a statement about who you are, followed by a sign-up field that doesn't really get into anything that people are interested in or that doesn't reflect where they're coming from in the state of awareness sort of space, um, then you're, you know, you're kind of screwing yourself out of your business, like out of the things that you could possibly be doing with those visitors coming there. So a big reason why startups in particular and all small businesses, but startups in particular need to think about state of awareness is so that they don't fall into the trap of copying large businesses with huge brands that are able to get away with certain things that we're not when we're small and, and trying to get our name out there. Joanna, you say on your website that things like fear, distrust, nostalgia, curiosity can help in copy. Can you give any examples of this, especially nostalgia? I'm trying to wrap my brains how nostalgia can possibly help in copy. So is it okay to go through each of those fear, distrust, nostalgia and curiosity? I mean, yeah, examples are are kind of tough to come up with on the fly, (laughs) but I'll do my best. Okay, so fear, right? People don't generally want to use this. I worked at Intuit for five years as a senior copywriter there, and I wrote a long-form sales page once that the um, uh, vice senior vice president uh, <laughs> read, and he was like, nope, we're not doing this. It's fear-mongering. It wasn't fear-mongering, but it was addressing 
it was addressing fears in real ways, right? Like not pretending. I mean, we often, as marketers, we say, you know, well, let's try to do the positive spin. Let's let's not let's not go negative. Let's stay positive. Mm-hmm. But what we see working in conversion rate optimization so often is that people are more interested in, or they respond um, better because you're actually tapping into a real emotion when you're talking about something that they might be afraid of. I mean, loss aversion is. It's a big concept in persuasion, right? The idea of people being more afraid of losing what they already have than they are willing to gain something new. But marketers are always trying to help them gain something new. When we talk about fear, we're really talking about, in a lot of cases at least, in the in some of the higher converting cases, about tapping into that loss aversion, about the things that they don't want to lose and how this solution can help them not lose those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So that's one example of, of fear. And, you know, an example of going there is really, you know, when we're talking loss aversion about what might a person risk losing by not taking this offer today or by not signing up today versus what might they gain. So that's, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When we get to distrust, nostalgia and curiosity, Distrust is kind of tough out of context. So do you recall like like what that that line was because certainly the idea of of distrust um it's really if you're aligning with a group that's against like an untrustworthy group then mm-hmm. perhaps that could be persuasive. Do you recall the um, it was a bullet point actually on one of your ebooks, so it's in there somewhere. But I think you're probably right, creating a common enemy perhaps. Um, f- for example, in internet marketing, you see it all the time. If you rewind back to 2008, there are all these get rich quick guys. And personally, I think the market has worked very hard to move away from that. And so a lot of internet marketers these days, although they are very trustworthy, because of the reputation that internet marketing has, it's kind of ruined their reputation too. So you often see people distancing themselves by making statements like this, the secret that the gurus are keeping from you. Maybe you know things like that could be distrust, you know, distrust of the competition. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good example. Yeah. Can you give an example of nostalgia? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, actually, nostalgia was the one that really got me. I have no idea how nostalgia would work. I don't know. Do you have any recollection? Oh, man. I mean, I guess it's the the flip side of future pacing in copywriting, right? Future pacing being where you're trying to get people to um, really imagine themselves using your solution before they've even bought it. Um, nostalgia is such a powerful um, emotion, right? We are constantly trying to seek that, you know, the Christmas of our youth, which didn't actually exist, but we all remember only the, you know, the shining moments um, because it's it's better for us from an evolutionary perspective to remember those than the bad things. So this this throwback, I mean, I guess we're seeing that kind of with things like um, like Instagram filters, even right when you're going kind of retro with something. I know Instagram filters has very little to do with copywriting and marketing, but it's really talking. What, what I'm saying by giving that example is is this just how badly we kind of as on mass want to go back to a simpler time. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's actually a compulsion that people have is to go back to quote unquote, the way things were, um, which is pretty common. Um, then that can be a powerful tool to use um, when you're trying to sell something. It doesn't have to be something that does bring them back to those times, but, but what are those times 
mean for them? How did they feel? And given the strength of nostalgia as like an emotional pull, um, you can you can go kind of crazy with that. It's a bit it could be a bit manipulative unless you but it's all about how you execute it. Right. Selling a Polaroid camera to somebody um, based largely on the fact that they grew up with Polaroid and they loved it. Um, getting into those sorts of things, even if it's a knockoff of Polaroid or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that, that that nostalgia is a key tool for actually moving products like that and, and of course for moving other things but but in particular for those things that make us feel uh innocent or like life could be as it once was i totally agree it, it does work and someone must have used this on me recently joanna because i just bought a christmas cd with all the old songs uh, from my childhood and i didn't realize it consciously at the time but it was probably nostalgia that was the main driver behind me buying that album Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I do the same things, right? Yeah. I, that's why I listen to Bonnie M every Christmas, yeah. right? Because my dad played it growing up. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think a lot of us are in the same are in the same boat. So we can weave that in with either words, stories, imagery, all of those kind of things. So we can give people a sense of a, a lost and maybe better time that they wish to experience again. Yeah, and that's even as, as shallow a memory as last summer's vacation, right? It doesn't even have right. to go back years, but um, mm-hmm. you you know you could sell accounting software using nostalgia by saying something as simple as you know by showing imagery and then you know getting into messages that are around having the time to spend with your family, you know, and that sort of thing, right? Like mm-hmm. like you did before before you were a small business owner, that kind of thing you can get into. It's, really, it's just about how we used to feel and how we kind of romanticize the way things were. Okay. And then the last one, curiosity. Ah, uh, curiosity. Curiosity is, is a great deal of fun to play with and it doesn't feel very manipulative. I know that fear, distrust and nostalgia can, if you're doing it to like with this like scuzzy sales hat on, it can feel a little gross sometimes. Hopefully people don't do that though. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but curiosity is really, you know, just piquing people's interest and not finishing a story or waiting a while to finish a story. It's using cliffhangers and using unusual phrasing that doesn't tell the whole story, which is really what most of us are doing when we're writing copy successfully. In particular, of course, long copy does this really well because you can pull people down the page line by line, which short copy or web 2.0 copy can't quite do as well, but you can, you can still build in like even experiences in short copy where um, people have to click to get the full story, right? And that's, mm-hmm. of course, it's a great way to get more clicks to your page or from your email to a landing page is by, you know, not completing a story um, or, or suggesting something that might follow so people can't help but want to connect the dots. They actually, you know, feel anxiety at the idea of not uh, closing that puzzle off or, or finishing it or, or understanding the end of the story. So curiosity can go a long way for long copy, for um Emails in particular, um, especially do really well with, with, you know, curiosity, that gap that people have to uh, fill. Yeah, I've heard people calling that um, creating an open loop. Is that the same concept? Yeah, I know Ben Settle, the email marketer, talks about that quite a bit too. Yeah. yeah. So my next question, I've heard you mention the term intentionally formatting. So what is that? And do you have any tips on how we could use that? Yes, yes. I think intentional formatting is, um, it's something that you don't think about in your first draft, maybe even your second draft, but 
It's the part, especially in short copy, where you are obviously formatting things in such a way that it's not. I mean, a lot of times when we say, oh, you're writing short copy. okay, you're writing a a homepage. Um, There's a wall of text there. It's too much text. So turn that into bullet points. So you just turn it into bullet points. But you don't really think about the order in which you're presenting those bullet points or you have these three key messages you want to communicate on a page. So you think, well, what's our first message? Let's make that the big one. What's our second message? We'll put that as a subhead below. What's our third? We'll make it just the opening line for our, you know, hero body copy, whatever. Um, but that's, that's just, those are all really kind of not doing as much as you can with formatting. So when we talk about bullet points, um, an intentional way to format a really essential tip that I find, um, especially as your bullet lists get longer is, and a lot of copywriters will say, obviously, but a lot of people don't understand this and really like this tip. So, um, is of course that people are more likely to read the first two bullets. Let's say you have a bullet list of five. They're more likely to read the first two bullets and like the, First full bullet, the beginning of the second one, maybe a smidgen of the third one, mm-hmm. skip the fourth and read the beginning of the fifth. So the best way, if you have three messages you want to get across in those bullets, the three most important bullets out of those five is not to do one, two, three, four, five in order of, you know, priority, but maybe one, two, four, five, three. So mm-hmm. that people are looking at that fifth bullet point knowing that they are, knowing that if you put the third most important point as the third bullet in that list, it would get lost and you'd actually finish off with the reader landing on the fifth most important bullet and that's the last message that stays with them. That's not good. You want a really important message to stay with them. Um, so ending with the fifth most important is not the good thing to do and that's about, you know, intentional formatting. And when we talk about like, um, again, these three key messages you want to get across on a page rather than just doing headline subhead, you know, H1, H2, H3, um, you could and probably should do H1 and then a message near an image and really organizing things the way that the user's eye is likely to move. Mm-hmm. So it's these are really like simple tips, but people look at images. So put a key message on or directly below or directly be- above an image. People look at things that are out of the ordinary. So if something's really important to get across, then maybe you should handwrite it off to the side so people actually notice it. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing can help a lot. And it seems so obvious, right? But so often we just don't do that because we think, well, it's, it's not that important. Good tip. Not that important, though. Um, but it's actually critical, right? All of these small things are critical to getting one more conversion out of every, you know, a new visitor comes in. Will you convert them or not? If you don't do any of those things, you're less likely to convert them than if you do all the things that will help them understand your message and be more likely to click and eventually sign up or buy. So, Joanna, would you say this is a case of identifying the 5 or 10% most critical points that you really want people to read? And then, like you said, finding ways to highlight them. Uh, and make sure that those are the bits that are most likely to get read, especially if someone is just scanning through, then at least they see the really important stuff. Yes, and I agree. I think that it's we should generally assume that people will scan. That doesn't mean I think they won't read. I think they'll mo- in most cases start by assessing how much work they have to do to understand your message. So, and that means usually scanning the page and then going back to the things that interest them. Um, so 
Generally, yes, it's about one, having a messaging hierarchy, right? Knowing what messages your visitors need to see uh, on your page to complete the one goal you have in mind for that page. And then from that messaging hierarchy, not just saying, oh, okay, well, I know that this is the order one, two, three, four, five. So let's just place it on the page as one, two, three, four, five. Rather, let's place those key messages in the areas that are most likely to be looked at. And in the ways that, you know, working with the ways that people actually read a page. My next question was another term that I've seen you using a lot, which is crossheads. So what are crossheads and how do they help us? Great. Crossheads are, they, they come from long form sales page or direct response uh, mailings. Um, crossheads are just headline style subheads that, that fall down the page. Um, so, in long copy in particular, you'll see, you know, the centered, large kind of, we call them subheads because we generally don't know what else to call them, but they are called crossheads. Uh-huh. And they're the ones that go down the page and separate different blocks. Now, they work really well in long copy where you do have those breaks. In short copy or 2.0 style copy, website copy really, we tend to see people just do small little subheads that are like left aligned, um, you know, kind of sentence case. And they, it's, it's like they're afraid of themselves, right? They're not really standing up and saying, Hey, I have a message. Come read this message. It's important. They're just, they're more about like, let's, let's just, it looks nice if it's off to the side and, you know, in the sentence case and whatever. But, but when you put a message center, in title case, center of your page, in title case, um, and in a larger font, then you're more likely to get people to look at it, right? And in crossheads in particular, on long copy and in short, um, in both cases, they're likely to be the, the parts of your page that are when someone's scrolling and scanning, where they'll read those things. And I say read, they'll loosely read the first time, right? They'll look for something interesting in them the first time they scan and then possibly stop on one that really interests them or go back and start again. Or if they don't, if they're not interested at all, they'll just exit your site. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they're really motivated, they'll go and keep looking for more, but they might not be that happy. So anyway, crossheads though, um, can often when they're working well, like if you have like four crossheads down a page and a bunch of content in between them, um, people we've seen tend to read those crossheads or can often read those crossheads kind of together. So if you have a crosshead that's about topic A and then your next crosshead is about topic B, then they'll read A, B, right? Does that make sense? It's hard without like I'm I'm using my hands so much to explain it and it'd be better <laughs> with like an example on the page. Um, but but that's really what I suggest people do with crossheads is write them such that if you read only the crossheads on a page, you'll get the point, you'll yeah. get the key messages, and you'll see how they connect to each other. So crossheads in themselves, especially on long copy, can become a bit of a story of their own. Does sure. that make sense? Yeah, it does. I guess crossheads is a part of intentional formatting then, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Joanna, you mentioned on your site about um, button copy and click triggers. So when someone has read through your copy and you're asking them to take a call to action where they have to click a button, you say that some buttons can perform better than others. Would you let us know what some of the elements are of a high-performing button that is likely to get clicks? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we actually just finished up um, this something called the Summer of Buttons. <laughs> it's right now when you and I are talking, it's not summer anymore. But um, when we were in the summer, uh, we ran a whole bunch of tests on about 25 different startup sites where we were working entirely on optimizing buttons and really learning about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did this kind of mega Uber <laughs> test um, to learn about them. And some of the things that came out were really not terribly surprising, um, but what's surprising is that there's still things that people resist doing. So short list of some of the elements of higher performing buttons. Um, for starters, a great way to write a button is to try to complete the phrase, I want to blank. Now, the blank part is the language, of course, that becomes your button copy. So if you're trying to sell um, widgets, again, let's go back to widgets for buses. Um, you're trying to sell that. So what does the person on the page before they click the button, what are they really looking to do here? What do they want to get? And that's where they'll never, the completion of that sentence will never, <laughs> almost never be, I want to sign up or mm-hmm. I want to submit. Um, though and we often see sign up and submit, of course, is two big common buttons on websites, but it's obviously it's not, it's not right because it doesn't complete that. Um, now, what might be right is I want to uh, make my bus go faster. Let's say that's what this widget is there to do. Make my bus go faster. So a button would then be a test worthy button would simply be make my bus go faster. Now, that might be like what it's in the first person for one, which seems a bit confusing to people. Um, but it's actually it's a it's a really powerful thing. And, Every single test that we've done first person buttons in has beat the control that didn't have a first person button. And we did this all over the place. We got a 20% paid conversion lift for gumballs.com by making, there were a few changes made to the button, but one of the big ones was that we put it in the first person. Now a 20% paid conversion lift actually means you grow your web business by 20 percent, right? They're mm-hmm. actual 20 percent more paying customers. So this is not small. It's a small change. So people think, oh, it can't actually do much, but it's on a button. So it's like that's the point of conversion. You can't convert online without clicking a button. So critical to maybe look at your buttons right now and see if you can rewrite them to complete the phrase, I want to blank, with that blank thing really being about a benefit in the first person, not not a thing to do, but the benefit that the person wants to get or the outcome that they'll want after clicking this button. This study that you did, is it on copy hackers at the moment? Yeah, the reason we did it was um, because we like to write posts about um, A-B tests, winning A-B tests or multivariate tests. So um, we did it simply to get a bunch of content to share out over the coming you know, weeks and months. And six of those tests are covered in that copy blogger t- post I talked about. So you can go to copy hackers and find a link to that there, or you can go to copy blogger, sorry, copyblogger.com slash um, call to action buttons with hyphens between each. So that's how you can see those with a, with a lot more detail. Um, But for that, for the personal or the first person button as well, um, I don't know if your readers are familiar with, or your listeners are familiar with uh, crazy egg, the tool Mm -hmm. uh, heat and Shaw runs it. Um, So crazy egg, I did a test for them again this summer 
And it was on their homepage, which has been very popularly talked about and tested. And I haven't released this case study yet, but I'm quite excited to and we'll be doing it on the Crazy Egg blog soon. Um, but we ran a test against the very optimized control, which the geniuses over at Conversion Rate Experts first tested and got to this wonderful point that the Crazy Egg team has been unable to beat with any treatment since. Thankfully, they called me in and I was able to beat it. But what's interesting um, is that my button, so we did a whole bunch of variations. Now, the variation that won that beat the control was my new copy on the page, but it used the exact same button as the control did. And I didn't want to, but I wanted to test it to be sure. And that button was used the language, show me my heat map. Now we used other variations of that button that did not say, show me my heat map. And those ones lost to show me my heat map. So it's just another example. I know I'm focusing on this, but it's such a big tip. I mean, we, we see a lot of other things like make sure that your button looks like a button. Um, uh, it puts little what I call click triggers or little um, little important messages, benefits, reasons to believe around your button so that it's more likely to get clicked, right? So people are reminded of, let's say, your value proposition near your button at the point that they need to be reminded of it. Those kinds of things are all well and good. And you can read a lot of blog posts on that. But really, a, a huge tip is is to try it in the first person. Any findings on colors and sizes or are those things not as significant? Yeah, no, colors continue to be, I am not a fan of button color tests uh, in principle <laughs> because it's like, well, I want to do tests that help me learn about visitors so we can do more with that learning. Um, but frankly, every button color test that we did was um, a winner. And the, of course, you're like, well, what, what were they? And they were, all, they were all over the place. They were testing lots of different things. But the, the point with the colors that we tested was really to try to get your button as noticeable as, as possible and as prominent as possible. And that really means, and what we saw is that you can increase your, you may be able to, so test this, but you may be able to increase your conversion rate or your click rate on a button by changing the color of the one button, let's say on the plans and pricing page or on a catalog page or a page where there are multiple calls to action, mm -hmm. choose the one you most want people to click and make that a different color, make it, you know, more prominent because of that. Now, when we tested this, we did, we tested three black buttons against each other, or sorry, sorry, the control was three black buttons. Treatment B was black, green, and black buttons, so two blacks and a green, and the third was black, orange, and black. Now, Black, green, black was still part of the brand colors for this this particular software company. So black, green, black, and black, 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 of course, those are also part of the brand colors. Orange, for the third treatment, was not even in their palette at all. It's completely different from anything. It looked, you know, stunning kind of on the page where you're like, your eye can't help but go to it. And designers are rarely happy with that. But this treatment, what was the, it, this, this case study is in that copy blogger post too. Um, I don't have the data for it handy. I'm sorry about that, but it was a winner. I think I'm going to say it was, it got 90% more clicks than the control and 35% more clicks than the treatment B that had the green button. So making your button stand out, it's, 
it's not that it's more persuasive. It's that it's easier to acquire. There's less for people to think about. And of course, as copywriters, we're always trying to get them not to think at all, right? But just to take in, consume what we're trying to give them in a palatable way and then make it very, very easy for them to buy. So making it easy for them to notice a product in, you know, an environment with lots of products, help them notice one or narrow their options down dramatically um, and make it so that their little lizard brain can't help but look at this one thing. I mean, that it's obvious, but it's why button color tests continue to bring in results or at least kind of interesting learnings for the page. So to go in a, a different direction now, Joanna, I hear a lot about value propositions and how important they are. So first of all, can you let us know what is a value proposition and how can we write a really good one? Right. Okay, definitely. So value propositions are, uh, you know, a big deal for us. Um, we think that they're very important for small businesses in particular to use, growing businesses, startups, things like that. Um, a value proposition, it, how we've seen it work best, and we did um, before we did the summer of buttons, we did this larger, this other series of tests on, I think it was 15 startup sites where we tested value propositions as headlines and subheads. So um, what a value proposition is and what we kind of defined it is based loosely on what marketing experiments has found um, is a value proposition is a statement about what's unique and highly desirable about your solution, um, and it's messaged in a succinct, specific, and memorable way. Now, I know that sounds like it's asking a lot, but if you get it right based on that criteria, you can do really great things. And we published this actually in a book on our site called The Great Value Proposition Test. Um, so it's worth checking out. We saw uh, out of out of eleven published tests. Um, we had nine winners, which is like a really fantastic win rate for A-B testing. Um, so it says a lot. And what we were really doing there was we were testing your value proposition against your homepage headline or your key landing page headline. And that's simply because we recommend that your homepage headline in particular, when you're um, kind of new or when state of awareness is sort of low for you, um, your value proposition should be among the first things that your visitors see. Um, and so it makes a lot of sense for it to work, for it to be in your headline slash subhead. So um, that's what that's what we did. Now, tips for writing one is really, it's hard to say because it goes so many ways, but as long as you're choosing something that's, or you're talking about something that your visitors or your prospective customers actually really want um, and not in a summarized way, in a specific way, which is one of the five criteria. Again, it's unique, highly desirable, specific, succinct, and memorable, those five things. So as long as you're talking about something highly desirable that's hopefully unique to you, and even if it's not unique to you, you're the one person who's saying it, like the, you know, Mad Men, it's toasted principle where everybody else was toasting their cigarettes or their, their tobacco, but um, Lucky Strike decided to be the one. I know this is a knockoff of other examples that they just, you know, fictionalized for Mad Men, but um, that's kind of the principle, right? This it's toasted principle, even if it's not entirely unique to you, if no one else in your space is really saying it and you could position it as something desirable, for your prospect, then it might be a test-worthy value proposition. 
And from there, when you're actually writing it, once you've decided on what it's going to be about, the writing of it is about, first of all, just letting yourself write it out and then edit it down to something that that you can actually sink your teeth into. It's specific. It's not summarized. So if you think that your value proposition is that you save money for small businesses, that's too summarized, you'd want to get more specific than that. Again, because it's not, and although it's highly desirable, it is definitely not unique to you. You need to get into something that is more unique to you. And being specific can often help with that. Um, and then making it memorable, right? Saying it in a succinct way. We don't want to go on for 20 pages. We want this to fit, you know, in your headline subhead and maybe to be fleshed out a bit in your bullet points just below that. Um, and this is again on a 2.0 style site, so not on long copy. But, um, but if you can get memorable and specific and succinct, then you've got kind of a recipe as we saw tested for a conversion lift. My last question was about differentiation. You talk about how we should make ourselves desirably different. Do you have any tips on how we can do that? Yeah, I mean, and this is covered off in one of our books, too, on differentiation, which works with the value proposition book. But um, there are obviously loads of ways to differentiate yourself. Let's talk about the more interesting ones, right? It can be hard for a business, especially a small business, where it's kind of all on one or two people to figure out what your differentiators are. Um, so you look at your competitors and you compare yourself to them. And sometimes I think, especially depending on the competitor you're looking at, you may come up lacking and say, oh, there's nothing different about us, right? Like, oh, my gosh, there's absolutely we're the same. Um, so in this book, we, we try to encourage you to um, to look at other things that might be different, like. Perhaps you have a different worldview as an organization. And if you're young enough, you might be able to build this into your um, into your actual business itself. So we look at something like Tom's, the shoe company, and now shoe slash glasses, where they're really just a shoe company. They're making shoes. <laughs> they're not even beautiful shoes. They're shoes that represent a person's worldview, which is that they want to help people in developing countries. So for Tom's, instead of just being another shoe company, there's is a shoe company that donates another pair of shoes for every, every pair that you buy. And now glasses, you buy a pair of glasses from them, they'll donate to, they'll give a pair of glasses to somebody in need. Um, so that's something that they built in as a differentiator that it doesn't mean that they said, how are we going to differentiate ourselves? Oh, I guess we'll give away a pair of shoes. It's not that they had that conversation, but that that's something that we can take away and say, could we do something like that for our business? Then there are other things like perhaps your team or perhaps your team is your differentiator. Who are they comprised of? What kind of people are they comprised of? If you're selling email marketing solutions, let's say you have an email marketing software service, um, is your team filled with people who are email marketing pros. Can you talk about the fact that you're the only software email software provider built by XYZ, right? And those XYZ are those people that you'd have to, of course, then message, but built by a team of email pros. That could be highly desirable to an end user who's tired of working with maybe startups that are guessing and testing with email marketing while their clients are actually paying for the tool better to work with someone that you can actually trust knows what they're doing in email marketing than the other guy who's not saying that right and you don't know who is building this solution could be someone who doesn't even like email 
Um, so differentiating based on who's on your team, even differentiating based on who you are. I mean, there are so many yourself. Your brand is you, right? That's mm-hmm. you. Your it's your domain name. Right? This is who you are. You put yourself out there first. Marie Forleo, Laura Roder, all of these other people that we're seeing do this stuff too. Um, Martha Stewart is a good example. It's not easy to scale something like that where you're like differentiated based on who you are, but it can be a great way to help people remember you and learn about, instead of learning about a company, they're learning about a person. And that's, as I'm sure you've found, far better than, than just, you know, trying to connect with, with a company. Yeah, absolutely. Joanna, thank you so much for all the tips and advice that you've given us today. Um, some really cool advanced stuff, which is what I love and our listeners love as well. So thank you very much for that. Where can we get more of this type of information from you? Um, over at copyhackers.com and on Twitter um, at just at copyhackers. Um, that's where we're at. And what sort of stuff can we expect to find on copyhackers? What type of format is the information published? We have a weekly blog post, um, so and we really focus on trying to do, you know, kind of quote unquote epic posts, things that other people might charge for. I don't know, that's not always true, but that's that's where we start, right? Would we be willing to pay for this content? And so that's what we try to do with blog posts. We also, of course, have you know ebooks and courses, which right there, but they're. They're not like you don't have to buy them. We're not really um, maybe we should be more aggressive with the way that we sell, but but we don't. Um, we're really interested in, in getting our information out there, helping people to grow their businesses based on tested practices, not just guesses and not assumptions, but really testing. And then we get a lot of we get a lot of cool stuff out of that. A lot of people say nice things about us. So um, and that turns into other things, which is why we're not really that aggressive with our sales. So you don't have to worry that you're going to come there and be like beat over the head with um, with a bunch of pitches or something like that. Not that that's like our differentiator at all, but it is something to consider when you're going to um, the site of an information marketer. Right. Awesome. That's the end of today's show. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. And Joanna, a big thanks to you once again for coming on the show. Thanks, Joey. It was awesome. The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.